Church, welcome into the house of the Lord this morning. Glad you're here. And happy Mother's Day. Good to see all you mothers here, Lord. I, I ask that the Lord would bless all you mothers, and I know we have all been blessed by the mothers in our lives. So anyway, we want to acknowledge you today. Um, so this morning I have a, a, a great praise team. You don't see any of them here, but they're going to be up here in a minute. I do want to uh, acknowledge that we have a guest artist with us today, Marcy Karianjahi is here. And so, and we also have Emma and Julie and Erica and Melanie up here as well, Vanessa and Doug. So looking forward to leading you in worship. Lord, we, we are here to worship, and we do know that worship is acknowledging who he is and what he's done, acknowledging his status. You know, to give glory to God, the word glory in the Bible usually means honor and high status. So we are here this morning to acknowledge and uh, sing to each other that he is, in fact, the ultimate in status in the universe. So that's why we're here. So we are going to call each other to worship to start our service. We're going to sing a song that calls each other to worship. So if you can and are willing and able to stand, let's begin in our worship time this morning. Put your hands together to praise the Lord. We will praise the name of the Please be seated. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you here this morning. As some of you know, I was 
unexpectedly not here last week, and so it is good to be back. I was had a severely sore throat, couldn't really talk very well, so not a great combination for being up here. But it's good to be back with you. So it's been two weeks since I've been here, so it's kind of hard to believe, right, that the last time I stood here in front of you, like, snow was falling, snow was covering the ground, and now here we are in what feels like middle of summer. So quick transition, but it's good to be here with you this morning. If you are new or visiting, my name's Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Free Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you're here with us. If there's anything you'd like to communicate with me or with the church office, there's a connect card in the seat in front of you. We would invite you to fill that out, add any information you would like us to know, and you can drop those in the wooden offering boxes that are on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those boxes are also where regular tithes and offerings can be placed. In addition to those regular tithes and offerings, this morning we're going to celebrate communion as part of our worship service. And on communion Sundays, we take a a special benevolence offering, which is just an offering that we use to meet needs in our community, in our church family, and in certain cases throughout the world. But it's a need, it's an offering we take to help meet physical, tangible needs. And so there will be someone at the door on your way out this morning holding a tray. So the, the benevolence offering can go in that tray, and regular tithes and offering can go in the wooden boxes on the back wall. A couple of things to bring to your attention. First of all, as I said last week, I was not here, and Pastor Ian filled in at the very last minute notice. So I just want to say thank you to Pastor Ian for filling in for me. Also last week, we had the Fun Club Carnival here at church, which was great. And I just want to say thank you to all of you who helped volunteer, helped run that, especially to, to Ann Epler and her team for putting that on, just the way that it... <laughs> that it blessed our community and blessed many people, yeah, many children and families in our community. A couple of things to bring your attention. Coming up in early June, we have our annual congregational meeting where we'll be voting on um, just candidates to fill our, some leadership positions here in the church. So those are listed on the back of your bulletin. Um, so I just want you to be aware of those, that you'll be voting on those June 4th. And also, if you're a member here, make it a, a priority to be a part of that meeting. So coming up at the end of May, we're having our, our rummage sale fundraiser that uh, Melissa Warner is heading up. She's going to come and give us a little more information about that. She grab one of your mics. Thank you. Is it on? Yep. Don't you love that little voice praising the Lord back there? <laughs> um, I am really excited to tell you the plans are coming along really well for the rummage sale. So just to reiterate, that's less than two weeks. So you still have time to go through your things and think about what you're not using and you can perhaps donate um, for a new home. So we are going to be moving all these chairs out on Sunday, May 21st, after Sunday school, and we'll need help with that. And then we're going to be accepting donations that afternoon, and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday during the day. If you need to come during the evening, you let us know, and I'll have somebody here to meet you. And then the sale uh, is Friday and Saturday, 8 to 4 on Memorial Day weekend. So we are doing pretty well with volunteers during the week. If you can volunteer for a shift 
during Memorial Day weekend. I know it's a busy weekend, but not everybody is busy. So um, maybe you could come and help. Um, we'll need many hands uh, when people are coming into the church to uh, purchase items. And then there will be a big push Saturday afternoon around 4 to 6 p.m. where we will be boxing everything up and St. Teresa's is coming to get to the leftovers for their thrift shop. So um, it's all coming along. We'll have snacks uh, for sale. And I just hope that if I haven't talked to you personally and you have a desire to help out in some way, we would love to include you. And um, we do have some stories of people whose lives have already been changed by the clean-out process. <laughs> and I'm serious, it's very moving. So um, um, I, I hope that we'll be able to share those with you afterwards. Thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you, Melissa. And yeah, I'm very excited for what that weekend will look like and the way it'll you know, be a blessing to the church and to, to those who are cleaning out. It's a way that they will bless our community as well. And so I'm just thankful for the work Melissa is putting in and um, the team she's assembling will put in for that. So, again, we are we're glad that you're here this morning. We gather together as the people that God has called together in this place today, this morning, to worship Him. And so as we continue in the time of worship, would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, we, we thank You for this chance to come together, to sit together as your people together in this place that we can be together as people you have set apart have called to yourself to worship you I pray for us this morning that our heart would be set on bringing you honor, bringing you glory, bringing you praise, because you are worthy of all honor and glory and praise. I just pray that any distractions that we may carry in from our work week or anything we may come in with from other cares or concerns, that we could set those aside. We could use this time to fix our minds on you and bring you honor, bring you glory, bring you praise. That we would delight in this time, that we would delight to worship you, that we would delight to, to be together, to fellowship with one another. I thank you for this people you have brought to this place. Father, I pray that we would be a people who abound in love for one another, who abound in love for Jesus, who abound in love for the people around us. We would love others well. Because we know that you loved us first when there was nothing lovable in us. We praise you and thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to live among us, to die for us when we had done nothing to deserve it. We 
crazy that you poured out your grace on us. You made forgiveness of our sins possible through Christ. Even though we had done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Father, I pray as we remember and reflect on all that you've done for us in Jesus, our heart would be called and desire to praise you. So do we do that now? Do we sing praise and honor and glory to you as we continue in this time of worship? We pray it's all in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's continue in our worship and song. Please stand if you will.
For your mercy never fails me All my days I've been held in your hands From the moment that I wake up Until I lay my head I will sing of the goodness of God of God I love your voice for you have led me through the fire in darkest night you are close like no other I've known you as a father I've known you as a friend I have lived in the goodness of God And all my life you have been faithful mm -hmm. All my life you have been so, so good Every breath that I am able I will sing of the goodness of God. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. Hey, your goodness is running after, it's running after me. With my life laid down, I'm surrendered now. I give you everything. Your goodness is running, running after Your goodness is running after, it's 
that is truly our testimony this day, this morning. You who who caused us to rise up from sleep gave us a brand new day. And this day, Lord, is a special day for many, many, many around the world when we commemorate Mother's Day. You were the original mother, for you are he who gave life to all that is. We praise you, our Lord, for the ways in which you cover us with your wings. Like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, we are gathered under your wing. We are held in your hand. We are fed by your hand. We are looked after and healed and raised up by your hand. We are comforted by your hand. And so, our Father, we praise you as the original giver of life. We praise you for Eve, the one, Lord, you created in your image, and you said that she would bear children. And yes, Lord, when sin came into the world through the deceit of the evil one, when she fell for that trick, the age-old tricks that he's been working on us all these years, Lord, you set up from the very beginning the seed of redemption. Lord, we thank you for the ways in which through Eve and through the women who came after her, Lord, you caused us to find redemption because through her seed, we were given Jesus. Lord, how can we praise you enough for that? How can we praise you enough for the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ on this day when we think of Mother's Day? And yet, Lord God, we know that this is not a joyful day for everyone. Father, this is a day when I remember that I bore a son, Muravi, and that he did not walk through this earth. This is the day when I remember at his funeral the many, many women who stood with me mourning their lost babies. The many women, Lord, who had given up their children for adoption and now lived with empty arms. And then there were the many who stood with me, including my closest friends, who had not yet received the gift of a child. And now, Lord, one of those celebrates as the mother of a son she has adopted. And God, there are so many stories of us women, but every last one of them is known by you. And God, you are our comfort, you are our help, you are our blesser. And so, Father, this day we celebrate all the ways in which you have chosen to honor motherhood, womanhood. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you chose to see women. You chose to see us in all our stages, whether we were bereaved or we were overflowing with blood that was making us so sick and pariahs in our society, or, Lord, we were caught in adultery and facing death, or we had just given up on marriage. Lord, you saw us. And so this day, we are celebrating you. You, Lord, who love us in every form that we come. Thank you for the men 
who love us too. For Lord, without them, some of us would not be mothers because it takes a, a woman to bring a man into the world. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the ways in which they love us and are present. And so, Lord Jesus, this day, as we celebrate your goodness in all its forms, we thank you for the word of life, the word that you speak. And from that word, everything is that is visible and invisible. And so, Father, as Pastor Tim comes up to share a word with us, may this word truly be your scripture that you say is sharper than a double-edged sword, and you say that, Lord, it creates life wherever it goes. Plant it in our hearts. May it germinate, grow, and bear fruit. And may this community, this region, this world, taste and see that the Lord is good because through us, he has sown goodness into the world. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' precious, precious name. Amen. just saying at the song like the goodness of God and often when we sing that song one of the things that happens in my own heart and mind is I start thinking about all the all the signs of God's goodness that I take for granted right, that I, I don't appreciate often enough and like, on this Mother's Day I think it's worth noting that like mothers are certainly one of those things right that it's easy to take them for granted to not appreciate them enough, but I was struck as we sang that song, that mothered our sign of, of the goodness of God, that if Martha just prayed, right, that there's a special role mothers have that certainly I can't fulfill. We're thankful for all of you who are mothers here this morning and the role you have in raising children. And on your way out this morning, we have a, have a gift for you. There will be the flowers for you that we would invite you to, to take and just at the sign that we appreciate and celebrate all you've done as mothers. As I said last week, as many of you know, I was not here. and I had planned on last week preaching a sermon that would wrap up our, our time talking about the Sabbath. And this, this series talking about the Sabbath is... Um, first of a kind of nine-part series talking about different ways that we can become more like Jesus. So we talked about the importance of Sabbath, how God created us, created the world, the universe in the six days, and then he Sabbathed on the seventh. So I'm not going to preach that full sermon this morning because, well, preaching about Sabbath and rest on Mother's Day just feels wrong. I just want to give you like the very short snippet version of what I'm going to say. And that's this. The author of Hebrews, writing about, talking about Sabbath, says this. That there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. Just as God did from his. This idea here then in the book of Hebrews is that, yes, there's this idea of a 
Sabbath rest that comes once every seven days. It's a rhythm that our hearts and our bodies are wired to need. But the greater Sabbath rest is the Sabbath rest that awaits us in eternity for all those who trust in Jesus. And because we trust in Jesus, we can rest from our work, right? That it's no longer our good works, our self-effort that earned our favor with God. But it's what Jesus did for us, Jesus living a sinless life on our behalf, that makes us right with God. And because it doesn't depend on us, we can rest. Jesus did what was required for us. And so our life can be marked by a, a restfulness, knowing that our eternal, eternity is secure. Our eternity doesn't depend on our being good enough, but that on, on the fact that Jesus was already good enough for us. So that's where we kind of end up, right? That, yes, I think the Sabbath rhythm of one day out of seven matters and it's important because we're wired to need rest. But more importantly, we need to understand that our ultimate rest, it waits us in eternity and we are sure of our eternal destiny because of what Jesus did for us. Not because of anything we can do to earn that eternity. And so the goal of, of that practice, the goal of all the practices we'll look at over the next several years, kind of in little intervals, is to help us become more like Jesus. And so today we start a new series with the book of Philippians, which will also, the heart behind that for me is that it will help us become more and more like Jesus, help us grow in Christ-likeness. So today we start, for the next eight weeks, we'll be going through the book of Philippians. That's where we are this morning. We'll be in Philippians chapter 1, looking at verses 1 through 11. The verses will be on the screen, but if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there, because it'll jump around a little bit and I won't have all the transitions on the screen, so I'd encourage you to have your Bible open. They're going to the seat in front of you if you need that. That's where we'll be. So in the 1986 Major League All-Star Game, two of the hardest-throwing pitchers of that era were kind of set to face off together. So they were the 21-year-old Dwight Gooden, and the 23-year-old Roger Clemens. Right? And there was kind of this debate going on at that time about who threw harder. Right? But it was widely accepted that they were two of the hardest throwers in baseball at that time. Right? And so Roger Clemens, who was a pitcher for the Red Sox in the American League, like there was no designated hitter, so, or there was, there was a designated hitter in the American League, so he never had to bat. Right? He never had to like, actually swing back. He hadn't batted since high school before coming to this all-star game. But then this all-star game was played under National League rules, and so he had to face Dwight Gooden in, a, in an at-bat. So in his first at-bat since high school, he's facing one of the hardest-throwing pitchers ever. And so he steps in kind of gingerly, and, and Gooden throws a fastball right by him, and Clemens turns around and looks at the umpire, and he says... Do I throw that hard? <laughs> and the umpire said, yes, Roger, you do. And Clemens then qu quickly proceeded to strike out, as you might expect. But it turned out that that at-bat was one of the most important events in Clemens' career. 
And Clement said that that at bat against Gooden helped him kind of change the way he thought about his own thinking about pitching. He realized, he saw Gooden's stuff, and he realized, well, my stuff, my pitches are similar to that. So that at bat gave Clemens confidence that right, if I really do throw like what Gooden does, then hitters are going to have an incredibly hard time hitting my pitches. It gave Clemens a newfound confidence, having seen it from the other perspective, just how hard it was to hit his pitches. And Clemens responded immediately by, by going out, and he pitched three perfect innings in that All-Star game. Facing some of the, the best batters in all of baseball, he, he pitched three innings and then allowed a single batter to reach base. And that confidence would then carry him to win both the American League Cy Young Award and the American League MVP Award that same year. And it's only been won ten times by the same player in the same season. The point is this. That the confidence that, that Clemens gained from his at-bat against Gooden, that confidence, it enabled him and it equipped him and it freed him to more effectively do the task that he had been given to do. And this morning, as we start this series through the book of Philippians, we see that the book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul. And one of the things we're going to see about Paul over and over and over again in this book is that he was supremely confident. And his confidence then enabled him and equipped him and freed him to do the task that he was called to do. There's one important distinction between Paul and Roger Clemens. And that's this. Roger Clemens' confidence came from his own ability to throw the baseball hard. Clemens' confidence was a self-confidence. But Paul's confidence is not a self-confidence. Instead, the confidence that Paul has is a, a deep and abiding confidence in God. Paul's confidence kind of summed up in, in verse 6 of chapter 1 when Paul writes this. I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And Paul is confident not in his own abilities, Paul is confident in the fact that, that God, who had started a good work in the heart of the Philippians, would carry it to completion. That God was not going to abandon his work. He was confident that God would carry his work to completion. Paul was confident in God. And what we'll see as we go through this letter in the next eight weeks or so, that Paul's confidence or his trust or his faith, whatever word you want to use, it'll manifest itself in all kinds of ways. Just as one example, in verse 21 of this chapter, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. A couple of verses later, he would say, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. It takes someone deeply confident in God. 
who deeply trust in God to say to die is gain. To say it is better by far for me to depart. But Paul has confidence as he says later in the same letter that Jesus has the power to transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And Paul is confident. Paul trusts that when he dies, he gets to go and be with Jesus. And he will receive a new glorified body and live forever with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. Because he's confident of that fact and he can say that it to die is gain. It's a truly astounding level of faith and confidence that, if I'm being honest, I don't always have. But Paul writes this letter in order to help the Philippians trust Jesus the way that he trusts Jesus, to have confidence in God the way that he has confidence in God. So my hope for us as we go through this letter over the next eight weeks that we will each grow in our confidence and trust in God. That we can become a little more like Paul, a lot more like Jesus. We'll have confidence, have trust And that confidence will equip us and empower us and free us to live the life that God has called each one of us to live. This book is all about becoming more like Jesus. What we see in this passage this morning is that God's holy people, the the people that God has called to himself, are committed to the advancement of the gospel and their personal growth in Christ-likeness. We're going to see that this morning as we walk through these 11 verses. That's my hope for each of us this morning and throughout this series, that we will, we will be committed to the advancement of the gospel and we'll be committed to our own personal growth in Christ-likeness. Let's look then, starting in verse 1 of of this passage. Starting in verse 1, we read, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Before we get too far into what Paul actually says here, we should note that Paul is writing this to the people, the Christians, the holy people at Philippi. So it's helpful for us to have a little bit of information about the church in Philippi itself, before we jump in further. So Philippi was the city in the province of Macedonia, in modern-day Greece. From a kind of broadly historical perspective, perhaps the most noteworthy thing about Philippi is that in 42 BC, Philippi was the location where Antony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius. Brutus and Cassius are are famous for being the assassins of Julius Caesar. But then Antony and Octavian came and they defeated Brutus and Cassius. And as a result, they built this city of Philippi in Greece to be a Roman colony for 
kind of retired military personnel. So they, the people of Philippi were by and large largely kind of ex-Roman military, and they had a special status as Roman citizens, even though they were living abroad. They were exempt from some taxes. They were 800 miles from Rome, but they were still citizens. They were a very patriotic group of Romans. The official language was Latin, despite being in the heart of Greece. They were proud of their Roman citizenship. So when Paul says things like, remember you are citizens of heaven first, not of Rome first, he's coming from that perspective. So the church of Philippi was actually the very first church that Paul planted in what we now call Europe. He went there on a first missionary journey. He actually didn't have any plans to go there. But one night he has a vision of a, a man from Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And Luke, writing an act, tells us, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul gets up and he goes to Macedonia. And when he gets there, his kind of normal mode of operation when he gets to a new city was to go to the synagogue in the city first and preach the gospel to the Jews that were there before moving on to the Gentiles. But in Philippi, apparently, there weren't even... Ten Jewish men, which is what was required to start a synagogue. So there, weren't, there was no synagogue. There weren't apparently even ten Jewish men there. So instead he goes to a prayer meeting by a, by a river outside of town. And he meets at that prayer meeting a woman named Lydia. We're told this woman Lydia is a dealer in purple cloth. And Acts tells us that the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Paul's message was all about the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lydia hears the gospel, hears how her sins can be forgiven, and she responds because the Lord opened her heart. And that is the start of this church in Philippi. So this woman, woman Lydia, trusting in the message Paul proclaims, this church in Philippi, that Paul now writes this letter to, starts. There's one other kind of noteworthy event that takes place during Paul's time in Philippi the first time. That's one time as they're kind of on their way down to the river, down to the prayer gathering on another day, they, Paul encountered a slave girl. And this, this girl is enslaved because she has a spirit that can predict the future. And her ability to predict the future is earning her owners lots of money. But then Paul and Silas cast a spirit that, out of this girl so she can no longer predict the future and her owners become angry at Paul for costing them their source of income. And so these owners bring Paul to jail to the authorities to throw Paul in jail. And then while in jail, Paul is, is singing praying when all of a sudden there's this massive earthquake and the, the prison door fly open. And the guard on duty wakes up and he sees that the prison doors are open. He assumes that everyone then has escaped and he's going to kill himself because he knows that death is the penalty for allowing prisoners to escape. 
But just, about, just as he's about to kill himself, Paul calls out, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights. He rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. And so that's what we know of the beginnings of the church in Philippi. There's this woman, Lydia, who is a a dealer in purple cloth. There's this slave girl who no longer can make money for her owners. And there's this jailer and his household. That's a unique group to start a church with. It's a diverse group to start a church with. And you look at that from the outside perspective and you say, that can't last. Cloth dealer and this jailer and this slave girl. Like, how does that make a church? But I love that the quote from Matt Chandler that's on the inside of your bulletin. I'll read it here, but it's on the inside of both if you want to follow along. He said, If we're honest with ourselves, we will admit that we tend to prefer to do life with people who are similar to us. We live in neighborhoods and associate with people who look like us and act like us. Most of us go to church with people who are similar to us. This is the natural tendency of all people. But the gospel is not natural. And we see here in the odd beginnings of the Philippian church, the gospel blows the doors off all our tidy little hegemonic communes and creates a whole new community that never would have formed without it apart from the supernaturally reconciling ministry of grace. Rich fashionistas are not doing life with poor demoniacs. It isn't happening. But because Paul is willing to put skin in the game, risking his own life to bring the message of life in Christ, what was once divided is now unified in love. The gospel that Paul proclaims can unite and knit together in love people from all different kinds of backgrounds. One of the big themes throughout this book is that there should be unity in the church because we're united around the gospel. The gospel unites people from different backgrounds, different perspectives. Unite them around a love for Jesus. One of the things that I enjoy about being here in this church is that we see people from different backgrounds, different ages, different life stories all together united around a desire to worship God and follow Jesus. It's like we see it here in the church in Philippi. Right, so that's the, kind of the backstory of the church in, in Philippi. So with that in mind, let's kind of get into the, the passage itself. Again, starting in first one, Paul says, Paul and Timothy, 
servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these two verses kind of form the kind of formal, official greeting of the letter. In, in ancient letters, this was kind of the, the form that an introduction, a greeting took. But it always includes kind of an introduction from the person writing. I think it's striking how Paul introduces himself. Because by the time he writes this, he has all kinds of credentials. Paul could have said, like, Paul, a planter of 14 churches, Paul, a key leader among the apostles, Paul, a receiver of a personal revelation from Jesus himself. He doesn't say any of that. All he does, he says simply, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. That's his claim to fame. That's what he's going to hang his hat on. That he's a servant of Christ Jesus. Nothing he's done, none of the amazing things he's accomplished, but just that he's a servant of Christ Jesus. I don't know if you've ever like, read the back of like, an, the author bio at the back of a book or gone to someone's website and go to the like, about me section and they just list all their accomplishments and it just feels a little weird to read all that because you know they wrote it even though they write it from a third person perspective. It's like, yeah, you wrote that. Like, chill, dude. But Paul, he doesn't do that. He simply calls himself a servant. In fact, later in the same letter, he will say that everything he could have hung his hat on, all his human accomplishments, this is what he says about them. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is utterly uninterested in hyping up his own accomplishments. He only wants to be identified as a servant of Christ. Everything else he counts as rubbish, as trash, as worthless. Because he is confident, right, that Paul, that Christ is so much greater than he is. He is confident that he has received a righteousness from God that depends on faith. So he sees no value in hyping his own credentials. He's a model for us, but the type of humility that trusting in Jesus should produce. John the Baptist famously said of Jesus, he must become, <clears throat> he must become greater, I must become less. And Paul clearly feels the same way. I don't know about you, but oh, I have room to grow in this area. We live in a world and a culture of, of self-promotion and self-aggrandizement. The whole social media ecosystem is built on a desire we have to show a kind of curated, cleaned up, perfect vision of ourselves to the world so we can receive praise for how great we are. That's not to say that 
Some people don't use social media for good purposes. But the reason that Facebook and Instagram and others are worth billions of dollars, that there's a, there's a deep desire in people to delight in showing off their own accomplishments and their own achievements. All I have to say, we, we live in a culture that makes living with the kind of humility that Paul calls us to here incredibly difficult. It's hard to do it in a culture where we're constantly prompted to show off our achievements. But if we are to grow to be like Christ, this kind of humility is something that we must learn in the words of Peter to clothe ourselves in. Peter tells us to clothe ourselves in righteousness. Paul in Colossians says, put on humility. So Paul greets the church in Philippi with that opening, but calling himself a servant. And then he transitions to a joyful prayer. Continuing in verse 3, we read this. I thank my God every time I remember you. And on my prayer for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from that day until now. Being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have have you in my heart, whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how long, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Pretty much every commentator agrees that the church in Philippi, the Philippians, were were Paul's favorite church, the church he loves best. Which is why he can say at the end, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. It kind of feels like Paul shouldn't have favorite churches. But like, when I was a teacher, I wasn't supposed to have favorite students. But... Like if you're a teacher, you know, like, you have favorite students. Right? I certainly had favorite students. And Paul, seemingly the way he writes, had a, a favorite church, a, a, a church that he felt this deep connection to, a deep affection for at the church in Philippi. Paul planted, some people think, 14 churches, but the church in Philippi seemed to be his favorite. And that comes through in this prayer. He says he prayed for the Philippians with joy. He's not praying with sorrow or despair over their sinful behavior, which is the case in some of his other letters. Like, look at you, Corinth. He's, he's delighting. He's praying with joy for the Philippians. He said in verse 4, I always pray with joy. And then in verse 5, he goes on to say, why he prays with joy. He tells us this. He says, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul finds delight and joy in the Philippians because they have continually and faithfully partnered with him in the gospel. Paul's life has been all about, since the moment he met Jesus, 
but all about advancing the gospel and traveling from town to town, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the good news that Jesus has died to forgive sins and that anyone who trusts in him can have their sins forgiven and receive eternal life. That's why he came to Philippi in the first place, to spread that message. That's the message he proclaimed to Lydia down by the river. That's the message he proclaimed to the fortune-telling girl and the message he proclaimed to the jailer. That's the message that built the church in Philippi. And now the church has partnered with him in the gospel. And Paul doesn't tell us exactly what it means that they partnered with him, but I think there's two kind of clear components. First, the Philippians were partnering with Paul by helping fund his travels, helping fund his life as a missionary. They were giving him money. They were providing financial support to Paul's effort to proclaim the gospel. But it was more than that. They were also partnering with Paul by joining him in his mission to share the gospel by doing so themselves. A little bit later in this letter, Paul will say, and because of my chains, he's in prison and he writes this, he says, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. All, most of the brothers and sisters proclaim the gospel without fear. It's not just Paul doing the proclaiming. It's the brothers and sisters, the members of the church who proclaim the gospel. That's what it means to partner with Paul in the gospel, proclaiming it alongside him. Those who heard the gospel from Paul didn't keep it to themselves. They went out and shared it with others. They went to their families and friends and co-workers. And they told them about the forgiveness that is available to them through Christ. The church in Philippi, who Paul writes this letter to, would not have grown to the side that would if Paul was the only one sharing the gospel. In fact, Paul spent relatively little time actually in Philippi, perhaps just a couple of months. And then he left it to the Philippians themselves to carry on the work of sharing the gospel with others. And for us, as as believers in Jesus and as a church, we're called to the same kind of partnership in the gospel. We are called both to partner with those who are sharing the gospel kind of as a career by, by funding them, by giving money to them. We do that through our church budget with a variety of missionaries like the, the Ellen Woods and the Longs and the Vanderplugs and others. Like we give them money. We partner with them in the gospel in that way. But we're also called to partner in the gospel by actively sharing our faith ourselves. We're called to share with others the good news that though we are sinners who deserve death, Jesus, through his death on the cross, took our place and offered to forgive our sins if we have a faith in him. We are called to be partners in the gospel. I'll praise a prayer of joy, delighting that the Philippians have done that. Paul doesn't only pray for gospel advancement, he also prays for growth in Christ-likeness. 
Starting in verse 9, we read this. This is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that you may be able to discern what is best. It may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. To the glory and praise of God. Paul prayed for the Philippians to grow in Christ's likeness. He prayed that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. He prays that the Philippians would be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. But above all, he prays that the Philippians' love would abound more and more. As I said, that's my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. Then he says, so that, all that other stuff. But the bedrock is that their love for one another and their love for Christ would abound more and more. The, the quality that fuels all other spiritual growth is a love that abounds more and more. A love both for Christ and a love for others. As Paul famously says in 1 Corinthians, like all other Virtues and spiritual gifts are worthless apart from love. This series, as we walk through Philippians and as we continue looking at more of the practices that make us more like Jesus, there are important things to learn that we can do to become more like Jesus. But if we don't abound in love first, none of the other stuff matters. So the question becomes, how do we abound in love? Paul modeled for us one way right here in this letter. We should pray for one another that each other would abound in love. Paul prayed for the Philippians that they would abound in love. And we should be praying the same thing for one another. I don't know about for you, but for me, typically when I pray for others, it's kind of a crisis type of prayer. I pray for those who are sick or going through a hard time. I I pray for some tangible need someone has, or I pray for God to help someone in a trial. But Paul here, he's praying for the Philippians in the midst of joy. There's no crisis, there's no great need. He's praying in joy, but he's praying that love would abound. I think that's a helpful model for us. We should have to be praying for one another, not just in the midst of emergencies and trials and needs. We've got to pray for one another during the good times too. We should pray that we would each abound in love for others, abound in love for Christ. Pray that love may abound. And the other way we can grow in love for Christ and our love for others is by remembering how 
Jesus loved us first. In the book of 1 John, John writes, We love because he first loved us. Our ability to love is rooted in the fact that Jesus loved us when there was nothing lovable in us. Because we have received that love, we're then able and equipped to to show love to others even when they don't necessarily deserve it. And love is the fuel that motivates all other growth in Christ's likeness. So if we want to become more like Jesus, if we want to grow to be like Christ, then we need to first abound in love. We do that when we remember how Jesus loved us. One of the ways we remember how Jesus loved us is, is through taking communion. In taking communion, we remember how when we were yet sinners, when we had sinned, when there was nothing lovable in us, Jesus came and he submitted himself to death. He submitted himself to having his body broken and his blood poured out so that our sins can be forgiven. We could have renewed, restored relationship with God and have eternal life. That is love, that he would come and die for us when we did not deserve it. So we remember that by taking communion. So we're going to take communion just a few minutes here. Before we do that, I'm going to pray and we're going to watch a short video. And then I'll come and give directions for communion and then we will take communion together. Let's pray first. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you loved us when we didn't deserve it. You loved us when we were in the depths of our sin. You loved us enough to send Jesus to us that our sins could be forgiven. As we enter this time of taking communion, would we remember all that Jesus accomplished for us through his death and resurrection? Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to watch the short video that Eric, Eric introduced for us, and then I'll come give us directions after that. Just a brief uh, word before we watch this video. Um, it's a time for us to prepare for communion. And you know, for most of my life, I thought that was thinking about my life and just ensuring that it was all cleaned up, right? And if there's a few little trivial sins, you confess those, and then you're good to go. But that is so backwards. I think what Paul meant is that you need to look at your life and recognize that you were, you are, and you always will be a sinner, and your life is not cleaned up. It's a mess that you need a Savior, and we're remembering that Savior when we come to communion. So I don't know if that frees you up, but boy, it helped me to realize that um, the Christian life is not about being cleaned up. It's about having a Savior that will take care of the mess that your life really is. 
So we're going to watch a short two-minute clip from Alistair Begg. First thing you'll notice, he has an accent. He's not from here around here. He's from Cleveland. Let's watch it. If you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you, were, you, were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You'd never been in a Bible study. You'd never got baptized. You, never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and, yet, and yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor ranger. So we just a few questions for you. First of all, are you, are, you, are, you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, I've never heard of it in my life. And, and what about, uh, let's just go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, on, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. <laughs> now, now, that's the... That is the only answer. In just a minute, we're going to take communion and remember we just heard. The way we're going to do that is on each of the two aisles here, we have elements laid out. There's bread and juice laid out. But you just come up the aisle and take one of each and return to your seat and just sit in a few moments of quiet reflection while we, we sing and we play some music and then when everyone has the elements and then return to their seat we will come and we will partake together if you want gluten free elements they're in the wicker baskets on each of the tables there's the gluten free bread in each of those and then if you need someone to bring the elements to you, we have some. Just raise your hand, and I will come around, and I will bring the elements to you who are, would rather stay in your seats. So let's pray once again, and then we will start our time of remembering what Christ has done for us. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your broken body, your poured out blood. And we remember that it's only on the basis of all that you've done for us, that we can come before you. We have any hope of eternal life. Would we marvel at your love for us? And would it fuel us to love others? We pray to in Jesus' name. Amen. You ready to make up?
the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Partake. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for this reminder of your deep, abounding love for us. As we go from here, would we go abounding in love for others, abounding in love for you? Would we love because you first loved us? But our love for others transform us to live the life you've called us to live. Through our love, we become more like you and the way you live and the way you treated others. our life be marked by a deep desire to become more and more like Jesus. Pray so in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we just mention a couple real quick notes about the rest of the morning. So downstairs we'll have snacks and treats and coffee and just a time of fellowship and then children's Sunday school will start at 10.30 and then up here in 10.45 in this room, I'll lead a discussion on kind of what we talked about this morning. If you have any questions about the book of Philippians in general, or just anything about what I said, or just want to talk more about the sermon and the 11 verses in Philippians, we'd love to have you join us and talk more about that. Again, we're thankful for all you mothers who are here. I invite you to, to grab flowers on your way out. We're thankful for you. Happy Mother's Day. You are dismissed.